thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and thank you for joining us for today's episode, which I believe will probably be, unless I get long-winded, the final episode in our series, Restoring the Ruins. And we're going to begin a new series that I've entitled simply, Building Blocks, that having laid a foundation, which was the series prior to the present one, having talked about restoring the ruins in the sense of understanding the ruins that exist in our present culture regarding the Western legal foundation, we're going to look at what are the building blocks for moving forward in a positive way generationally instead of always just focusing in a reactive, defensive posture trying to stop bad things. And I hope you'll join me for that next series. I also hope you'll attend the Fight, Laugh, Feast conference that's coming up in Knoxville in October. I'll have a table there at the conference and would be delighted to have you stop by, chat a little bit, ask questions that perhaps you've not sent me emails about. But uh, I hope you will attend the conference. I think there's going to be some great speakers there, lively topics, and information that will be helpful to you. So if you haven't registered, let me encourage you to go ahead and do that. So today, as I begin to wrap up this series on restoring the ruins and talking about the ruins of the Western Legal Foundation, I want to tie the topic in today to two things about law that I hope will set up a context for understanding why the theological aspect of today's program, the biblical theology of today's program, is is so important to restoring the ruins. I want to begin with a quote from Planned Parenthood versus Casey. For those that may not know, that was the decision in 1992 by the United States Supreme Court that reaffirmed the central premise, what the court said, of Roe versus Wade regarding the liberty right of a woman to kill her unborn child. At the conclusion of the majority opinion, and it was actually a plurality opinion, there were five justices that agreed on certain parts and three justices that agreed on other parts, but at the end, all five of the justices who supported the judgment holding the law unconstitutional joined in this statement, and let me read it to you. Our Constitution is a covenant running from the first generation of Americans to us and then to future generations. Then notice what they said next, which has to be true of a covenant. It is a coherent succession. In other words, it can't mean one thing when it's created, another thing today, and a different thing tomorrow. It has to have a coherent succession. In other words, it has an eschatology that has to stay consistent with with what it actually embodies. And of course, we've been talking about eschatologies in recent episodes. Then it says this, each generation must learn anew 
that the Constitution's written terms embody ideas and aspirations that must survive more ages than one. I want to point out the importance of this statement, that we have to learn what our Constitution is about. The ideas, or I would say the history, behind the words in the document. And of course, we've talked about those two different views of history in previous episodes. And as we've been trying to cover in recent weeks, we have to understand the Western legal tradition that underlies the Constitution, or we will not make a coherent successive handoff to the next generation. So that is a great context for today because I want to talk about the concept of covenant and the Constitution being a covenant and the fact that the concept of covenant is what undergirds and informs the whole story of the Bible, both its cosmology, its soteriology, and its eschatology. As I've often said in this series, if you get your soteriology ripped from the context of cosmology, it will produce a different eschatology. So they all three have to fit together. From him, salvation is through him, and its eschatology is back to him. Romans 11, 36. You can't take that verse apart. You can't take cosmology, soteriology, and eschatology apart. If you don't have them harmoniously joined together, as a coherent succession, you will get off course. And of course, we've talked about the fact that following the Puritan Revolution, the English Revolution, the positive eschatology of the Puritans disappeared. And as Berman said, the church as a whole has not contributed anything to the sustaining and ongoing development of the Western legal tradition since then. Okay. Now, this concept of covenant that is used here in the context of the Constitution, is also worked in the everyday practice of law. And for instance, William Blackstone spoke about the importance of covenants to a routine matter uh, that involves millions of Americans probably every day. And William Blackstone, for those who don't know, was the author of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, published, I think it was in 1765, And its importance is seen by the fact that Blackstone and his commentaries were quoted by the United States Supreme Court this past June in its decisions reversing Roe versus Wade and upholding the Second Amendment right to bear arms. So this is not just some dry ancient history that nobody cares about anymore. Blackstone is relevant to today as of June of 2022. So William Blackstone here comments on something that as I said, happens all the time. The sale, the purchase of real estate, like with your house. And if you recall, in connection with the purchase of your home, you signed a real estate contract and there was a deed associated with it. And here's what Blackstone says, speaking of the parts of a deed in a real estate contract. Quote, after warrants, now what he means there is statements warranting who owns the property and whose it's being sold to. So at the beginning, you establish the parties to the transaction. So after the warrants that I own this house and you are buying this house, 
He says, usually follow covenants, which are clauses of agreement contained in a deed, whereby either party may stipulate for the truth of certain facts or may bind himself to perform or give something to the other. And of course, you've seen those in real estate contracts, right? That it's contingent on financing, it's uh, contingent on uh, an inspection of the property and it being approved. All kinds of things can go into this real estate transaction that ultimately produces a deed you bring down to the courthouse and record so everybody knows the transaction was completed. So covenants are critically important. But before, again, I get into the theological aspect of covenants that undergird the whole story of the Bible. I want to mention something that a 19th century Dutch theologian, Herman Bavink, wrote. It's in the second volume of his recently published Reformed Dogmatics, four-volume four Reformed Dogmatics. It's the section under God and creation. And this is what Bavink wrote. Among rational and moral creatures, human beings, all higher life takes the form of covenant. The animals don't make covenants, but rational moral creatures do. They make stipulations. I will do, you will do. He goes on to say, generally, a covenant is an agreement between persons who voluntarily obligate and bind themselves to each other for the purpose of fending off an evil or obtaining a good. The real estate transaction being, of course, uh, a good or fending off the evil of being without shelter. He continues, such an agreement, whether it is made tacitly or defined in explicit detail, is the usual form in terms of which humans live and work together. Now, I want to comment right here on the fact that he refers to agreements tacitly made. We, we typically think of agreements as, as, you know, contracts that we write down as a form of covenant. But in the law, there are what we would call implied contracts. There's a, a Latin phrase, quantum meruit, uh, so that, for instance, if I come up to you and say, Mr., I'm going to paint your house or mow your yard or whatever it is, and you sit on the front porch and watch me do those things, and then I say, you know, I think that was worth, uh, you know, $100 or whatever it is, the, the person sitting on the porch who owns the house or owns the grass that got cut can't say, well, I don't know you anything. I, I didn't sign any contract with you. And the law would say, yes, but tacitly, when the guy told you what he was going to do and you didn't say no, and you sat there and watched the person do it, you have to pay the fair value of that service that you got. So as you see, uh, contracts, covenants, flow throughout our day-to-day -day existence. Bavent continues, love, friendship, marriage, as well as all social cooperation in business, industry, science, art, and so forth, and as we just saw, even with respect to law and the Constitution, is ultimately grounded in a covenant. That is, in reciprocal fidelity and an assortment of generally recognized moral obligations, that I've promised to do something and there's a fidelity owed to you that if you do what, what you've promised, I will do what I've promised. So when I say to you, yes, I'll pay you $100 to mow my yard, 
there is a fidelity, a reciprocal fidelity relationship here that while I mowed the yard, you need to pay me the $100. Bobbitt continues, it should not surprise us therefore that also the highest and most richly textured life of human beings, namely religion, bears this character. In scripture, covenant is the fixed form in which the relation of God to his people is depicted and presented. So if we don't understand that the concept of covenant, which we see worked out in our law and applied, I mean, that's the Western legal tradition, isn't it? We take something that's true about the nature of reality found in scripture that we can say, this is the way the cosmos works. And now we need to develop it organically into the various situations of life. That's the Western legal tradition. Now, I would say this because the concept of covenant is, is foreign to many Christians. It was foreign to me growing up. You know, I grew up in churches that made little mention of the concept of covenant other than the Old Testament dealt with the Old Covenant, the New Testament dealt with the New Covenant. We were partakers of the New Covenant. But the concept of covenant didn't have much content or meaning. And, and today, I want to cover that so that we can appreciate the fact that when we seek to restore the foundation, when in the next series we start looking at the building blocks for restoring the foundations, we don't do so with a sense of stoic defeatism. I'm going to do it out of obedience, but it won't matter. It doesn't make any difference. Who cares? But I must be obedient. Gird up your loins, grit your teeth, pull up your big boy pants, and just get on with doing the right thing. You got to understand this concept of covenant. And when you do, at the end of today, I hope you leave this broadcast with a renewed hope and vigor that perhaps you've never had, even as I, after 28 years in politics, am experiencing a sense of optimism and vigor and excitement about the future that, to be honest, I've never had. Now, that being said, there is a difference between these kinds of human covenants that, that Bobak was talking about in business, industry, science, and art, and God's covenant with his people, and it's important. It's too often overlooked. And today, we just won't have an opportunity to look at some of those objections and the answers to them. But with respect to God's relationship with his people, that generic concept, God's relationship to his people, Bavink says this, quote, even if the term covenant never occurred in scripture for the religious relation between Adam and God. So if, if it didn't occur in scripture, and he goes on to say, not even in a Hosea 6, 7, which I would encourage you to read, which talks about the people of Israel breaking the covenant, even as Adam broke the covenant. But Bavink continues, still, the religious life of man before the fall bears the character of a covenant. So what he's saying here, even if the word covenant was never used, as we look at what's taking place in scripture, we will see that it bears the nature of a covenant and, and think back to what I've said about analogical reasoning. We have covenants and agreements, and so 
that concept is derived from something. It didn't just pop into our head like, look how smart I am. I'm the Renaissance man. Let's have covenants. No. Creation and life and history is revealing to us God. And that's a concept that we've, we've lost too. That the creation is speaking to us. History is speaking to us about God. Now, why is the covenant critical to Christian theology? Why is it so important to understand this? Why would I say this has to be the foundation for understanding the whole story of the Bible and man's relationship with God? And again, Bob talks about this, and I'm just going to summarize some of what he says. But because Christians believe in a doctrine of creation where God creates ex nihilo, out of nothing, that the created existence is no part of the essence of God, it is distinct and of a different order than God, then, then there could be no relationship between an infinite creator and a different in essence creature who is finite unless there is a covenantal relationship between the two. There, there couldn't be any, any relationship. It would be incompatible. At best, Bobbing says, the relationship then would be strictly master and servant, and, and that probably wouldn't even describe it well. But we would have to conclude this in terms of the blessings, which are clearly part of what the Scripture says about the covenant between God and his people. Absent that, man would have no rights. We can't make any claim before God to anything. We can't make a claim to mercy, for sure, because then that's not mercy. If it's a claim, it's a right. And we have no rights as against God because we're creatures. We don't have any right to grace or to eternal bliss. The only way anything beyond mere existence and death and being swallowed up by the dust again could be granted to us if God condescends to grant us blessing. And that must be by means of a covenant promise. That covenant is the only assurance we have that that blessing, that bliss, that good would ever be fulfilled. That's why we have contracts. That's my only assurance that if I go paint your house or mow your yard, I'm going to get paid. So the ground for hope for us in trying to restore the ruins and for the upcoming topic about building blocks is a covenant that I never heard anything about until about four years ago. And it's called the Eternal Covenant. Sometimes it's called the Covenant of Redemption. Sometimes it's called the Covenant of Peace. Sometimes it's called the Everlasting Covenant. And so when you're reading some of the older authors and authors over you know, different time periods, don't let that confuse you. But I'm drawing today for the remainder of our program from a book by A.W. Pink called The Divine Covenants. And you can find a copy of it in PDF format online. Now, with respect to this idea of an eternal covenant, again, I never heard of it. Heard of the old covenant, heard of the new covenant. Never heard of the eternal covenant. If you heard of it, praise God for the churches that you've been in. But we know from Scripture that salvation through Jesus Christ is according to the determinate counsel 
and foreknowledge of God. That's found in Acts 2.23, where, where Peter says, Lord, you see their threats, but all they have done is what you have already predetermined would happen with your son, Jesus Christ. Okay? I mean, that's what we see there. And so Pink writes as follows. God was pleased to make known his eternal purpose of mercy unto the fathers, which is what Peter was talking about, praying about in Acts 2.23, in the form of covenants, which were of different characters and revealed at various times. Now, in the church today, we get all knotted up a lot about covenants, and there's a covenant with the church, the new covenant, and there's a covenant with Israel, and the two covenants don't seem to really relate to one another, and so we have this, this theology that says the church must be removed through a rapture so that God's covenant with Israel can be fulfilled. And, and so uh, Pink is, is speaking here to the fact that there are forms of covenants of different characters revealed at different times. These covenants, he says, enter into the very nature and pervade with their peculiar qualities the whole system of divine truth. They have an intimate connection with each other, which, as I said, sometimes gets lost today, and a common relation to a single purpose, one purpose for all of these covenants, not two different covenants or two different purposes. Being, in fact, Pink says, so many successive stages in the unfolding of the scheme of divine grace. And there we see that notion about the Constitution, a coherent succession from the past generation to the present to the future. These covenants, he says, treat the divine side of things, disclosing the source from which all blessings come to men and making known the channel, which is Christ, through which they flow to them. So these covenants with, with Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David, they are showing us on the temporal time and space side of things, the divine side of things, the eternal covenant side of things. Pink continues, each one reveals some new and fundamental aspect of truth, truth not being disjointed and disconnected, a coherent succession, as the Supreme Court said, and in considering them in their scriptural order, we may clearly perceive the progress of revelation which they respectively indicated. And that's why I was talking last week about Isaiah 54 and the, the children of the desolate one will be greater than the children of the married woman. Spread your tents out. This is like the time of Noah's with the Messiah coming, prophesied in Isaiah 53, where the descendants of Japheth will dwell under the tents of Shem, and Japheth will be the servant to both of his brothers. You see, it is working out this coherent succession that predates Abraham to Noah, where the word covenant first actually appears. Okay, so Pink continues. They, speaking of these covenants with uh, Noah and on into the future there, set forth the great design of God accomplished by the Redeemer of his people. Now, quoting 
from the lectures of A.A. A. Hodge, the principal at Princeton Seminary between 1878 and 1886, as saying this. He gives us an analogy to creation, because creation is what? Helping reveal the glory of God. Hodge writes, we know that in the solar system, our Earth is a satellite of one of the great suns, and of this particular system, we have a knowledge because of our position. But we know that this system is only one of myriads with variations that have been launched in the great abyss of space. So we know that this great, all-comprehensive plan of God, considered as one system, must contain a great many subordinate systems, which might be studied profitably if we were in the position to do so as self-contained whole separate from the rest, to which Pink adds the following observation. That one system, or the eternal plan of God, was comprised in the everlasting covenant. The many subordinate systems are the various covenants God made with different ones from time to time. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and so on. So Pink says these covenants with Noah are temporal covenants shadowing forth the everlasting covenant as the basis of all of God's dealings with his people. In other words, we have to get the concept down of this everlasting covenant to make sense of all the covenants mentioned in Scripture. Pink notes, quote, Few today discern what the covenants are in themselves, their relations to each other, and their consequent bearings upon the design of God in the Redeemer. We're going to talk about that again in just a moment. Since the covenants pertain unto the very rudiments of the doctrine of Christ, ignorance of them must cause obscurity to the rest upon the whole gospel system. Continuing on, Pink says, During the balmy days of the Puritans' considerable attention was given to the subject of the covenants, as their writings evidence. But their massive volumes fell into general neglect until a generation arose who had no light their own. And that's me, friends. I grew up in the church, evangelical churches, Bible-believing churches, and I had no concept what the covenants were or exactly how they related to one another. It was just walk the aisle, get saved, get baptized, take the communion, live a good life, go to heaven. That's all you really need to know. Ah, well, anyway. But here then is the effect of not having light and understanding on these covenants. And, and what Pink says here harmonizes perfectly with Berman's observation that the positive eschatology of the Puritans was displaced in the 1800s and replaced with the utopian eschatologies of Marx or nihilism, which allows us to create our own eschatology. Pink says is the result of not having this light. This made it easier for certain men to impose upon them, talking to people of God, the crudities and vagaries and make their poor dupes believe a wonderful discovery had been made in the rightly dividing of the word of truth. So what was this new discovery that was the new uh, rightly dividing of the word of truth? Well, Pink describes it this way. Now, let me just say, Pink did not grow up with an understanding 
of the divine covenants much like me. Here's what he says. These men shuffled scripture until they arranged the passages, treating of the covenants, to arbitrarily divide time into seven dispensations and partitioned off the Bible accordingly. Now, now see the importance of this to what Berman was saying. Beginning with the papal revolution in the 11th century, flowing through the Puritan revolution in the 17th century, the English revolution, there was one dispensation of time, history, interrupted where the course of history turned from leading to Jesus Christ to going on to the completion of the work of Christ, which rests in the eternal covenant. And Pink continues, How dreadfully superficial and faulty their findings are appear from the popular Schofield Bible, where no less than eight covenants are noticed and nothing is said about the everlasting covenant. Oh, well, I, I'm going to have to stop there. I got too much more still to cover, but it is critically important. So I hope you'll bear with me one more week as we go through this series on restoring the ruins. I promise we'll finish next week, and then we'll start on the building blocks of the series. So I hope, hope you'll join me next week for that. And again, I would encourage you to attend the Fight Love Feast Conference coming up. I think it's October the 19th. Register for it now. And uh, when you do, look for the God, Law, and Liberty table. And I look forward to meeting you. And until next time on God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.